Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. On today's episode, we welcome author, consultant, and retired Navy SEAL officer, Marty Strong. Marty is the author of numerous books, running the spectrum from engaging novels, to visionary thought leadership for business, including his latest work, Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield, and, In Business. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and I'm really, really excited and looking forward to speaking with Marty Strong. As you know, Marty's had a tremendous background. First of all, Marty, thank you for service to our country, putting yourself in harm's way for more than two decades in some missions that I'm sure you're not able to talk about, but I know that they meant a big, big difference to the rest of us. So thank you as a person who's proud to be an American for everything you've done for us there. Thanks, Dan. And so we want like to know a little bit about some of the twists and turns of your life that have led you to this position of leadership and contribution. I wonder if you could time travel with us for a few minutes and share some of the most important pivot points as maybe you're headed a certain direction and then a person or an event happened that moved you in a different way. Because as you look back, I'm sure that they make some kind of sense, but at the moment they might've been surprising. Yeah. I don't know if they made any sense. I teach a class to single mothers that were trying to get jobs, learn how to get jobs. And the part that I was supposed to teach was called success planning. And when I, when I sat down and looked at my life and sort of think, okay, what kind of examples can I use? I realized that while I may have been successful in different increments of what I was doing, I wasn't very successful at long-range planning because almost everything in my life ended up being serendipity or you know just kind of a strange jump and leap at a brass ring. So I actually flipped it and taught the class as nonlinear success and told them about you know Ulysses S. Grant and President Truman and people that are famous and are accomplished that started out one way had missteps, whatever, ended up being presidents or major figures in our history. So I say all that because I started out at 17 trying to get out of Nebraska to join the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps recruiter showed me some slides that showed Marines carrying very, very heavy backpacks. I was only about 125 pounds. I thought that was not for me. Uh, I ended up going over to the Navy recruiter, joined to be a radar air traffic control expert, went through that school and at the end of that 17-week school, I got orders, and the orders were to underwater demolition SEAL training the next morning. And I didn't understand it. They couldn't explain it. They just said, show up. I showed up in California, and a Master Chief Petty Officer convinced me to stay and try it. So that's kind of the first non-linear success part of my life. <laughs> and it took me about eight years. When I went back, I was an instructor, and I was able to get into the archive and look at my records, and I saw that I had passed... I'd taken a uh, swim test in boot camp, which I thought was, I was sent there to, to try to uh, get on a swim team in boot camp. And it turned out that they took my social security number, my name down, and it was actually a, a, a swim test for the SEAL program. So until I went there as an instructor eight years later, I didn't really know how it happened. But we started out with 126 guys in my class, and we ended up with 13 original graduates six months later. The only distinction I think I had in that whole thing was I gained about two more pounds and I was the worst runner in the class when we started. And I was the worst runner in the class when we graduated. <laughs> so sticking with my nonlinear success methodology, I had a undergraduate degree 
in business and I got a master's in management while I was in the service. My thought was I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer. I want to start a small uh, law practice up in Northern Maryland when I retired. And so I set myself up to go to law school. And I was way down that path, almost 11 months down that path, when a retired SEAL captain came into my office and said, we're going to lunch. The EXO said, you, you think you're going to be a lawyer. You're not going to be a lawyer. Let's go. So he takes <laughs> me to lunch. And it turned out that when he retired a year earlier, he went into the financial services industry, working for a company called Alex Brown out of Baltimore. He could speak Portuguese. So they put him in this group that was doing Brazilian uh, initial public offerings. Good fit. I mean, he had a language skill. Didn't know anything about investing money, et cetera, but they said they would teach him. And he said, I can get you into the same firm. They fired two other SEAL officers. You don't have to go to school for three years. You've already gone to school long enough. That's what you need to do. It's stupid to go to law school. So we spent the whole two-hour lunch talking me out of law school. And I took a couple of weeks after that to go to some of the local financial services firms like Merrill Lynch and Leg Mason and back then Smith Barney and learned enough about it that I decided I really didn't want to go to Alex Brown where he was. But I could actually kind of put my own shingle up in certain companies and run my own business. And, and that's kind of what I was attracted to. So in a roundabout way, I ended up completely tossing aside the 12-month plan to become a lawyer. And I called the um, Leg Mason Woodwalker office in Baltimore. And I had a copy of their annual report. And I said, can I talk to the, I was an operations officer at the time. Can I talk to the operations officer? And they said, sure, you can talk to Mr. Brinkley. Who are you? And I told him who I was. And they said, we're gonna, well, he'll have to call you back. I was clueless that I was calling the, the COO of a big corporation. So the next day, the phone rings and they said, sir, you've got a call on line three. Somebody says, Jim Brinkley. So I pick up the phone and I don't know who Jim Brinkley is. And he, he had a voice like uh, Ross Perot. And he said, Marty, you've got 30 seconds to explain to me why we should interview you. Wow. And I don't know what I said. And at the end of it, he said, all right, I'm good. I'm good with this. I'm impressed. My secretary will call you up and we'll set you up. Click. So I ended up in financial services. What I didn't realize at the time was that I was going to have to find my own clients and finding my own clients and also selling financial services products and services was selling. Mm -hmm. And even though I had a, an undergraduate degree and degree in business, they didn't teach you how to sell in those programs. They just taught you about how businesses functioned. So I had not one hour of sales training. Mm -hmm. And I, once I realized it and I had, I went to the branch manager and he said, you're going to have to start punching plastic and making cold calls. You need to get out and do cold walking and knock on doors of business owners. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? So I went from being this, uh, this very successful seal and, you know, the chest full of metals and stuff to a guy staring at a plastic phone on my desk, wondering what the heck did I just do? Finally, what I was good at was, was seminars. I was good at standing in front of people and explaining things and conveying, I guess, a, a sense of honesty that translated to trust, which was a big part of the money management business, which I didn't realize at the time. And I was in that business for seven and a half years. I think I, I made the right decision in not going to law school, but it set me off on a whole different path for sure. Sure did. One of my favorite quotes is Louis Pasteur. It's chance favors the prepared mind. And I found that if you just keep an open mind and try to learn, I mean, learning how to speak to people, learning how to listen, learning how to sell, learning how to write, learning how to stand up in front of large groups and, and, and make presentations. These are all kind of universal supporting foundational skills. They translate across industries and, and a lot of different job tasks. And I've learned that over time. I didn't have a master plan to learn those things up front, but 
Well, I think what's happened is as I got better at those types of foundational skills, I became more capable of transforming myself and moving into some a new industry or a new job function or even a new role within an organization. Made me very, very malleable and very flexible and agile as an individual professional. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if I can redirect just a little bit here and talk not so much about the pathway, but some of the brick walls that you hit along the way. What are some strategies that, that you found helpful when we hit that point where we're just not sure how to see around it, under it, through it, or anything? Well, I have a little bit of an advantage in that the SEAL process is all about selecting people that are self-starting, self-motivating, resilient psychological profiles. They have a really good sense of humor, which is critical when you're up against some kind of a obstacle to, to moving forward. Pretty much all of special operations is about taking on tasks that the conventional operations forces aren't trained to do or can't handle uh, in the flow of the moment, which means you're thrown into situations with very little information, very little knowledge, and you're supposed to just go figure it out on the way. All the stuff you see in the movies is, is uh, incorrect as far as you get you know, weeks of planning and really cool mock-ups and lots of satellite pictures. And everything. In reality, if they had all that, they would just send a bomb or send the Marines. So you end up becoming very comfortable with either failing or your plan falling apart and having to completely recreate your plan or seeing an obstacle and seeing it as not just an obstacle, maybe it's an opportunity. I think 20 years of thinking that way and as an officer leading that way really set me up. So for me, it's take a couple steps back, acknowledge that I have a deficiency and then add up all the different things I have to do to overcome that deficiency, do that, and then attack that obstacle again. And then learn from what I'm still failing to do correctly, take that feedback, try to get smarter, talk to people, explain my path. And you know, if you keep doing that, it's kind of like running at the wall, but each time you're running at the wall, you're bigger, you're stronger, you're smarter. And eventually you either smash through it or you jump over it because you've, you've learned and that obstacle's actually prepared you to learn and caused you to learn as a catalyst to learn. Then the obstacle is not really an obstacle anymore. And I give speeches on this from time to time, but most people see, see an obstacle as kind of the, a, a dead end. You know, you quit, you stop, and you move someplace else, you know, where there's no obstacles. And, you know, most obstacles are, are kind of created in our own minds. You take yourself out of the fight 90% of the time, not the obstacle. The obstacle doesn't take you out of the fight. You take yourself out of the fight. And you don't have to be the smartest person facing that obstacle. You pull in everybody you know and ask. And maybe they don't know anything about how to, how to get around this particular challenge, but you will start to find an amazing number of people. There's eventually people that'll start telling you, oh yeah, I ran into that once before and this is what I did. And suddenly you start to get insights and you see the obstacle differently. Once in a while you run into an obstacle you just can't defeat. And in my case, it's because I didn't have enough time to do all that preparation to defeat the obstacle. There was, there was a time limitation to it, but whatever the obstacle challenge is, you have to become humble, have an intellectual kind of humility so that you open your mind so that you disregard and cast aside all the kind of the baggage of everything you've been told and everything you've been taught and all the good things too. Because sometimes you think you're a winner, you think you're this, and that also kind of holds back an open-minded approach to the challenge. So that's what I preach all the time. It doesn't matter if you got a raise or you got promoted six months ago, or you got divorced, you got fired. That has no bearing on the, on the challenge in front of you. Learn whatever the new data set is, analyze the new data set, and then hit it in a flexible and agile way. A lot of wisdom packed into that answer, Marty. Thank you so much. Especially the, the focus on our own heads is a bigger problem or a bigger problem than the actual obstacle. Kind of wondering about something now. 
because you're so versatile, not only a business leader, I know you, you spend a lot of time helping people and you're also an author and a screenplay writer. Understand that you've put together a full length screenplay for a faith-based movie called Messiah. How in the world do you stay so versatile without getting completely random and off track and missing what you're supposed to be working on? So I'm, I'm pretty good at short range detailed planning and the discipline to execute the plan. I'm very focused and very diligent and disciplined. So the writing's fairly simple. I read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, about six years ago. And in that book, he outlines two things that were, were kind of insightful to me. One was that you should live your bucket list. You shouldn't wait until you're not healthy enough to actually do the things you wanted to do or go see the places you wanted to see, or you don't want to spend the money because you're retired and you're worried about your, your savings. Do it now. And the second thing was an analysis and an inventory of how you were spending your day. To do an inventory of your seven days, write down hour for hour, minute for minute if you have to, what did I spend my time doing? Is anything that I'm doing here that I actually absolutely don't have to do, like you have to go to work and do your job, but if you're sitting there watching you know, news shows or you're reading news magazines, and does that have a bearing on your life? Does it have a bearing on your job? And if it doesn't, why are you doing it? And I ended up coming up with about two and a half hours a day of free time. And I just carved out from 5.15 in the morning to 6.15 to write, and then another hour to 45 minutes to work out. So that by, say, 8 o'clock, as I'm you know, walking out the door to go to work, I've knocked off two things for Marty. Done the disciplined job of writing three to 500 words a day, and I've, I've worked out, and that supports my health. And I wrote the first book, a time travel novel, and then I wrote the second time travel novel, and then I wrote the first SEAL novel. And I just kept back to back writing them because I was in that groove and pretty soon it was just a lifestyle. It was like brushing your teeth. It just, I just did it. I've done that with the, the eight novels and I've done that with the two business books, Being Nimble and the one that I just sent this morning, the final version to the uh, publisher. Can you share one or two of the key insights in the Be Nimble? Sure. So the subtitle is how the creative Navy SEAL mindset wins on the battlefield in business. Although the book is probably about 60 to 70% all my business experience and, and business examples to support what I'm talking about. And the rest of it is what I learned in the military and specifically in the SEAL teams. The book addresses what existing leaders and aspirational leaders need as far as a toolbox to deal with growing companies, scaling companies, and dealing with the challenges of those two efforts, which bring on, you know, all the, the emotion and dynamics of change. A lot of it has to do with, you know, human resources and understanding the talent. So I talk a lot about talent selection and talent management, talent enhancement through training programs and cross-training programs and how to be in a mode where you're kind of zooming out and looking at the future and what's over the next hedgerow and then zooming back into the micro details and getting into a rhythm of doing both of those things instead of becoming a, an optimizing hyper-efficiency focused person, which is what a lot of people get patted on the back for, you know, the short-term gratification. But if you keep popping your head up and you're looking around, you see threats, but you also see opportunities. It's just a rhythm. In the military, they call that a battle rhythm. You sleep, you eat, you train, you prepare, you go fight, you start all over again. That's a battle rhythm. So it's the same kind of thing with leadership and business. I'm kind of wondering, Marty, what is it that keeps you from getting complacent? The disease is sometimes called satisfied-itis. What drives you in that regard? Yeah. I have a good, healthy dose of paranoia. Paranoia is normally seen as fear. And the kind of paranoia I feel isn't fear. The kind of paranoia I wake up with every morning is, who's out there getting ready to eat my lunch? Who stayed up late last night when I went to bed early? 
who's coming up with a smarter way to do what I'm doing and they're getting better margins? Because I know they're out there. I never believed. And in the SEAL teams, they'd say, well, you know, we're training, but somebody out there is training harder. So you always had this image in your mind that you weren't always the best. So you overtrained. You were so overprepared physically, mentally. And that was a sense of paranoia that drove you to that level of excellence. And I carry that into my business life. When I talk to people about their paranoia, I try to say, well, turn it into a positive energy. You wake up in the morning and you feel that way. Get a cup of coffee, sit down and write a couple of things that could change that, that mindset or change the outcome of what you think is, is a negative. And then go, go to work and start implementing those things. What is your competitor doing? And the other thing about, you know, there's a presentation I give from time to time I call fast forward leadership. You know, like in a DVR, we, we DVR all these things because we want to fast forward through the things that don't have any value for us, those commercials, right? So if you think of life that way, you don't want to have to have all these memories of failures and problems or successes muddying up your ability to face the truth of every day and to face the truth of a new challenge. You want to be as open-minded and as blank slate as you can be. That is the secret to being nimble and agile. It's odd that you get true insights, not from doubling down in the lane that you're that you're already kind of in, in the groove in. You get these oblique insights that have high impact from kind of leaning out into areas that you're not comfortable with. And there's insights and ways of looking at projects and challenges and the ways of, of completing tasks. All of a sudden your mind goes, that's what we should be doing applied to this. And, and then you're like, you have an Eureka moment. Marty, what can you offer by ways of encouragement to some of our listeners who have maybe more than hit a brick wall? They're so demoralized by either a business failure or a personal setback. Any things you could advise to those that are really hurting and discouraged right now about how to pull things together and move forward? I guess there's, so there's two categories. One would be if you're comfortable being an employee, and the other one would be if you are comfortable starting your own business. And when I managed money for UBS, I was all in just high net worth clients. 65% of my clients, and I had about 800 clients, 65% of them were self-made millionaires and half of those 65% were only high school graduates. Hmm. And I would venture to say that every one of those 65% would tell me stories to the extent where they were in bankruptcy two or three times before they finally figured it out. So the persistence part of this, it goes to the expectations issue. So I gave a speech a while back to a Naval Academy alumni group. I just had everybody react to questions by raising their hand and, and shouting out the answers. And I was saying, well, how long does it take to become an engineer? How long does it take to become a lawyer? How long does it take to become a software programmer? And they're throwing out three years, two years, four years. And I did this at when, when somebody asked me a question. I said, well, sir, how old are you? He says, well, I'm 41. I've been out, out of uniform for six months. And I said, okay, anybody, how long does it take for this gentleman to become a lawyer? Four years, they all yelled out. How about a software? So in other words, there's a path to a whole new world, a whole new way of of living a whole new profession, you just have to commit to being a, a neophyte, an apprentice on day one. If somebody wants to start a restaurant and they talk to me about it, I said, well, you ever owned a restaurant? No. What do you know about restaurants? Nothing. Okay. Go in, get a job at a restaurant, learn how to bus tables, ask lots of questions, watch what's going on, work your way into the back kitchen over six months, ask a lot of questions before you even think of be becoming a restaurant owner. Because you'll learn more as an apprentice getting in the middle of all that than you will sitting back, borrowing money from all your friends and family, and then trying to start a restaurant from scratch. What it comes down to is part of that humility thing again. If you're in a place where your industry has died, move or find a whole new job in that location. You have that freedom. At least in our country, you have that freedom. Reinvent yourself with confidence because 
the thing that's holding you back from doing that is you have an expectation that what was going on before that was successful is supposed to last forever. So you're still struggling with that baggage. You just have to completely, you know, burn that, forget about that and be willing to start small. So that feels like a self-esteem hit. Well, maybe or not, but guess what? You go to college four years later, you go to engineering school, you're an engineer, you're on a whole new track. Nobody really cares. The universe doesn't care that you were a commander of a ship or no, the universe doesn't care that you had a restaurant and it failed. And the universe, universe doesn't care if you had a great job you thought was going to last forever and they laid you off. But in our country, you're allowed to move around and make decisions. So you reinvent yourself. Just accept that that's okay. Doesn't matter what your friends and family think. I'm reinventing myself. Then all of a sudden, this, the stress of being a failure and the stress of trying to meet the expectations of your last position or job or the fact that you owned a, a successful business and it went away, those go away and now you're, you're cleared to go forward. Wow. That is so helpful. So on target. That time with you goes really quickly. Can you share before we end up here a little bit about your screenplay and about the film? Well, I wrote Messiah probably about five or six years ago, and it's not becoming a movie yet, but it's, it's an interesting uh, religious thriller. And essentially the, the premise is the Jewish religion believes that the Messiah is still coming. The Christian religion believes and the Muslim religion believes that Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, in the case of Islam, uh, Jesus was a prophet. They recognize that. In the case of Christianity, he was the son of God. So the, the question that the screenplay addresses is, what if that's wrong? What if something happens, let's say Israel believed that the actual Messiah had arrived? And what would everybody else do if they thought that Israel was sure enough that maybe they should hedge their bets? And, and it becomes a fight to find this Messiah, this kid that eventually gets hidden. But then at 13 years old, there's this kind of fight between different power blocks and everything. And it just kind of stirs up a lot of the, the humanity around religion, where if you just step back and read the words and believe in doing good things, it's pretty straightforward. But you know, now you've got all these power brokers that are trying to stop a possible thing from happening and others trying to hope and make the thing happen, but not necessarily for religious reasons, not necessarily for truly reasons of faith. It's more about power. And uh, that's what the screenplay is all about. I do hope it gets turned into a film because it's going to be an exciting one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I believe it. Marty, thank you for, for living such a good life and for sharing your time with us today. It means an awful lot. And keep doing the good that you're doing because the world needs that and you do it in a superb way. Thanks, Dan. It's been great. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.